friend of ours, and uh, we've, uh, all, uh, congregational leaders, we've already benefited from his teaching today. It's somebody we really love and respect. So let's welcome Ross as he comes to speak to us this evening. Alrighty, evening everyone. It's um, a real treat to be here. It's very exciting to be down in the Ferris Cape. It's been far too long since I hung out with some advanced brothers and sisters. And it's always fun to be in Cape Town. Um, BBC could actually plant a church here tomorrow um, with all of this emigration that we are sending you guys. Um, you guys are the new um, Adelaide or Perth or Sydney. Um, and so we do promise that we'll semigrate some talented rugby players in your direction in the near future um, just to help you along because you seem to be in need in that particular area. This can be a time of year um, where we need some encouragement and exhortation. Uh, church leaders, you've been through Easter, um, which is where we get to inflate our numbers um, as what we quote as our average for the rest of the year. But the change of season can remind us, especially as we move into winter, of the passing nature of time. We, we don't have the New Year's optimism with us anymore. We are tired and it can start to look like it's another year that might pass without us doing an Iron Man or writing a novel um, or getting out of debt. You have probably been running quite hard at life if your pace down here is anything like the pace up there. And I know it's relative, but you guys are trying. So you've probably been running quite hard. And you can wonder, we can end up wondering if our efforts in our own personal lives and our efforts in the ministry of God's church have made any difference through the year, and if they'll end up making any difference through the rest of the year. And so tonight, just really simply, I was hoping to just encourage you just from the, the only thing, the only source that I, I know how to leverage at an occasion such as this, and that is the Scriptures. And so if you have a Bible um, with you, why don't you open to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll go from um, verse 39. If you've got a smartphone, you've got a Bible. Um, and the nice thing of that is that if it gets boring, you can tweet some stuff out um, or look up some of your favorite Pinterest stuff um, or, or whatever it is that you want to do. I love the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it, um, but I do love this letter. One of our interns at the church late last year asked me if I could take one book of the Bible onto a desert island, what would it be? Um, I answered him by saying, that is the dumbest question I've ever heard. Which island and why do I only have the choice of one book? And what kind of intern are you? And are you hoping to get a job in this fine establishment? If you are, you should ask better questions. Um, but then we got around to the point of actually answering his question. And I said, if I could take one book of the Bible onto an island, it would be the book of Hebrews. It gives us such a strong view of the centrality of Christ in all things and the supremacy of Christ over all things, and it helps you to tie your Bible together. Um, and so it's a great way to lead people. If you're going to, we use um, Bible reading in discipleship. So we tell people just to read books of the Bible together. And Hebrews is actually a great one to help people who want to get a good biblical theology and tie the whole thing together. The context in Hebrews 11, as you well know, is the great hall of faith. It names a number of biblical heroes who the text says lived for a city beyond the city that they could see. Um, which is just a wonderful theme in the book of Hebrews, written to a bunch of sufferers, a bunch of strugglers, and it says what kept them going was that they lived for a heavenly city, 
a city beyond the one that they could see. And then it says something that's quite sobering and quite remarkable. They died not having received the reward that they had been promised, but having lived as strangers and aliens in the world, certain that their reward would be received in the life to come. It then goes on in the second part of Hebrews 11 to speak of the martyrs. It says those shot with arrows, stoned and sawn in two, who gave their lives for the faith. And then it says something quite astonishing, starting in verse 39. Here's what it says. And all of these, so all of these great heroes of the faith, all of these who have come before you, all of those who have sacrificed their lives, laid it down for the sake of the gospel, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. (laughs) That's an astonishing thing to consider. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Wow. What an encouragement. The, the, the first thought for you to hold on to at this time of year to, as an encouragement for you is this. This moment that we're in and this ministry that we're engaged in matters and matters way more than you think. We, we tend to look back at people of, of heroic faith in the scriptures and we tend to look back at the martyrs and say, oh, we in some way wish we were part of something that's significant. I love studying church revivals and, and often my heart's longing is, oh, if only I could live in one of those seasons where we would get to see something that's significant. The writer of the Hebrews tells his readers that they are part of something even better than what the biblical heroes and martyrs were part of. And what they were part of, which was better than what had been before them, was the perfection of or the completion of the number of God's people, his family, his church. Now stop and think about that for a minute. I know it's late at night, um, but we're going to have to engage our brains just a little bit here. But this right here, what you're doing, eldering, shepherding, leading in churches, supporting, nurturing, discipling discipling people, the ministry you're involved in is ongoing evidence of God's perfecting and completing of his people. It is a supernatural gig with remarkable reward and incredible endeavor that we get to be part of. You are part of the ongoing perfect work of God in the world. And you must bear that in mind. That should change our posture towards a few things. That, when I read it, even again tonight, should change and address my posture towards fellow Christians. How does it do that towards the the sheep that you've been called to shepherd? Uh, This week, man, we had a rough pastoral week at BBC. I don't know about your church context, but our trouble seems to come in clumps, right? And so everyone seems to forget their sinners for a few weeks, and then they all sin simultaneously at the same time, usually at the same gathering, which is one of our small groups. Um, and so uh, one of our, we call them gospel communities, um, and it wasn't really being good at a community, being a good community or full of the gospel at the time. It just blew up due to folly and immaturity and bad leadership and sin, and my heart was exasperated, and this text helped me to remember, God's not done, this is the messy, ongoing, perfecting of his people, be patient, Uh, be patient, God's slow and steady perfecting work is ongoing, How, how does this change your hopefulness in God's ongoing work in your own life, in your own sanctification, If God is perfecting his people, not just numerically, but God is perfecting his people in terms of sanctifying them, then then he's not done with you yet either. 
I have a remarkable ability to disappoint people, especially myself. Now, this is not a cry for help, okay? So don't come to me afterwards and offer me biblical-based counseling or anything like that. I'm in some of that. We'll talk about that later. But I find myself most days moderately disappointing. Um, and maybe you don't. Well done for you. Um, but, but most days when I get into bed, I find most of the things I was supposed to do, a lot of the things I was supposed to do, I haven't done. And the things that I wasn't supposed to do, I've done some of those, right? Anyone with me? Okay, this doesn't disqualify you from eldership, man. You can, uh, you can own up to this, okay? And, and so most days I'm like, oh man, I'm still not who I should be. Now what do you do with that? Well, you've got to remember that that's okay. God's perfecting work is ongoing. We must strive to be more Christ-like. We're going to talk about that in a second. But God is perfecting his people in his ongoing work of sanctifying and saving me. And he won't quit until he's done. And so if I'm still breathing, God's not finished with me in his project of conforming me to the image and likeness of his son. Gosh, that's great news to a wretch like me. And I hope it's good news to a struggler like you. How does this mobilize us for evangelism? It should. I can and must be bold and patient because God is completing his family. Now I'm emboldened to share, even though I'm an introvert weirdo and sharing the gospel is normally a really ham-fisted effort on my behalf and seldom bears any fruit, but it's not actually about me. It's about God perfecting his family. And if God is going to continue to increase the number of his family until he's done, then I get to participate in that. Then I don't need to worry about the outcome. That should embolden me. It's not just about a methodology. It's about me being a co-laborer with the King of Kings in the greatest work in the history of the world. Here's what he goes on. Therefore, so because of this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the martyrs and the heroes of the faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So this moment matters. The ministry that you're involved in matters. But your fight against sin also matters because we are part of this thing that started before us and because this legacy of our faith will go on after us until Jesus returns because of that the writer to the Hebrews says put sin to death your your legacy of holiness really really matters beyond just your lifespan and so because of that cast aside these these weights of sin that keep you bound we tend just listen I'm nearly done. No, I'm not. That's a lie. It's not even close. See, I'm moderately disappointed in myself again. No, I'm not. I'm okay with that one. We tend to deeply personalize sin and our fight against sin. It's why we keep it so secret. Because we don't realize that sin, even though it's committed personally, has communal impact. And it actually starts to bring that toxicity of that sin and separation from God into the environments we find ourselves in. We know that sin matters, but we assume wrongly that it matters just for our personal walk with God. And so all I need to do is fight sin privately because it only affects me and Jesus because he's my own personal Lord and Savior, which is a phrase that, by the way, we just completely made up. The writer of the Hebrews puts the fight against sin in the context of a community. And not just, this is amazing. This, this should awaken our hearts in Africa. Not just a community that is present with us now. We just live for the here and now. We've got su- supreme chronological arrogance as if this moment is the most significant and most enlightened and most important that ever there was. But, but this community that is with us as a believer is also the community that's gone before us and now serves 
as a heavenly cloud of witnesses. Your sin doesn't just affect you. It's part of the ongoing perfecting work of God's grace in, in God's people. All right. So just deal with me for a sec here. How does this change our focus in the fight against temptation? Now, this is going to sound weird, okay? And you don't need to invite me back. But often, when I am tempted to sin, I think of my grandpa, David Lester. Now, that's not in a weird worshiping the ancestors way that I think he's looking in at my house and going, Ross, what are you doing, okay? Uh, I, I, I believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so he's got an amazing reward with him. But I think about the legacy of faith that has come to me. My, my grandfather returned from the war totally shell-shocked, deeply abusive man. He used to um, uh, beat my grandma and all of his kids and was just a raging alcoholic. Until at a, a, a Peter Pollock preaching crusade, he gave his life to Christ, um, went to the bar afterwards, said, guys, you'll never see me again. They all laughed, but they never saw him again. Went home, emptied the alcohol cabinet, called a family meeting and said, I'll never lay a finger on any one of you ever again. And he never did. And by God's grace, he went on to be a fiery, terrifying, he took out all of his anger on his congregation, terrifying <laughs> preacher of the gospel that ended up leading hundreds of people to Christ. When I'm tempted to deviate from the path, I must think and consider that that legacy is something that has been handed to me as a baton through my grandfather and my dad, and I will hand to my son, Daniel, what am I doing with that? Fight sin, be faithful, it matters. It matters in, in, in the story of the Lesters. It matters in the story of the church. It matters in an ongoing multi-generational legacy of faith. It matters. And there's grace when I fail, absolutely. But it matters for more than just me. The writer of the Hebrews um, goes, hey guys, think of your ancestors in the faith and then fight sin with everything you have. Think about the multi-generational legacy What's faithfulness, all right? And what else? Let us run with endurance, second part of verse one, the race that is set before us. Now, I hate running, so I'm like, oh, what a terrible analogy, but it's helpful. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How many of you are feeling weary or faint-hearted in your faith? The writer of the Hebrews says, don't. Or, or how not? Consider Jesus. Consider the hostility that he had against him. Consider the fight that he had against him. And then don't grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle, he says, against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Okay, so this moment matters. Our ministry matters. Our fight against sin matters. But then our perseverance and our endurance in the faith also matters. We want to live mountaintop to mountaintop. We create experiences for this. We teach our congregations this, even by the way we design Sunday experiences. Just have these little elated emotive highs. That's Christianity, and then just grit your teeth in the midst of it. No, Christianity is a long race, the writer of the Hebrews says. It's like a marathon, and you've got to endure. You've got to, you've got to keep going. More important than you just gaining snippets of knowledge is you enduring in the knowledge and the faith that you already have. And so I'll ask you, leaders in the church, what are your plans to endure? What are your plans to make sure that this thing lasts? Who's going to walk with you? Who will help you to persevere in the valleys of life? We have come to experience and expect spiritual ebbs and flows as an inevitable consequence of the Christian life with its bumps and scrapes. 
But the writer of the Hebrews gives us a command. It's an instruction. It's actually, it's quite strong in the way he writes it. He says, don't grow faint-hearted. Don't grow faint-hearted. Don't get tossed about. He wants us to stay strong to the end. And I love how Frank, the writer of the, of the letter to the Hebrews could be. He says, look, it's not that hard. He's anticipating the millennial mindset, right? He's writing to you. He's going like, don't whine, all right? Stop your whining. It's not that difficult. You aren't even being killed for what you believe, all right? And so this is not even real persecution. A Facebook unfriend doesn't count in this kind of realm. Just don't grow faint-hearted. I know the Christian life is going to be a long fight. If it's not a long fight, you're not doing it right. But consider Christ and think of the eyewitnesses and then persevere. Now listen. That would be a deeply cruel instruction if our zeal, our fervor, our our heart for the gospel was something that we couldn't control and influence. Now, now, here's where we've gone back to the sins of our forefathers, the Gnostics. We think we have to wait till we feel zeal in order to act in a zeal-filled way. But if we have to wait until we just feel it, which is so much of our contemporary Christian experience, then the writer of Hebrews is a jerk because we can't control that and he's giving us an unrealistic command. What he must be saying is that faint-heartedness is something that we can decide and act against. The the decision to not grow faint-hearted must be something that we can control. Decisions and actions and faithfulness. I worry, I was saying this to the group earlier today, but I'm observing this in contemporary Christianity. I worry that in contemporary Christianity, we run the risk of making the godly pursuit of a disciplined and stable and steadfast life into a form of legalism that must be avoided. And so we, we've gone away from, oh, you don't, no, you don't need to have a quiet time. All right, you're righteous in Christ. You're righteous in Christ, so you should read your Bible. Uh, that's really it. How else are you going to know about your righteousness in Christ? How else are you going to guard against being faint-hearted? When we speak of discipline and reading the scriptures and being in prayer and putting sin to death and fasting, contemporary Christians get all offended like you're trying to make them work for their salvation like a Pharisee. Not at all. These are tremendous gifts given to us that we must persevere in so that, listen, you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's good for your soul. Do whatever you need to do to keep stirring your heart so that you may endure. So listen, um, I can be legalistic at times, and I'm a people pleaser. It's an issue that I have in and amongst the many others. Okay, so please don't come cancel me after. It's okay. We, we've got a team looking into this. But I've just leveraged that in my spiritual disciplines and pursuits. So I go like, well, a really great way to just kind of tame my people pleasing idol is just to use it to make me more like Christ. And so what do I do? I share my devotions every day. And so I use Evernote, I have a time in the scriptures and it goes to three of our elders. And I've told them, you don't get one on a day, I wanna hear from you. And they go like, isn't that legalistic? Yeah, but I don't wanna grow faint hearted. I don't wanna drift. I know I'm not gonna cruise towards godliness and I'm gonna have to feed this thing. So help me, help me to persevere. I know stuff is going to come along that's going to make me question all of this. Help me. Help me. I I need that. You probably need that. Uh, Your quiet time doesn't need to be an endless stream of aha moments. That's what the own network is for. It needs to be faithful, though. And it needs to persevere through different seasons of your life. It just needs to keep happening again and again and again 
and again, and it starts to build, and it guards you against becoming weary and faint-hearted. All right, let's read on. I'm going to read a long section here, and then we'll see where we go. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There's a good verse for some of the moms in the room. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems rather pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, gosh, I love this language, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. All right, fourth thing, your identity in Jesus Christ really, really matters. The writer is reminding the Hebrews that the one thing that they need to be reminded of is that regardless of what is going on in their circumstances, they are God's children. And that sometimes when life is going the hardest, that is not evidence of the loss of the child's status, but actually an ongoing proof of the fact that God is treating them as children. And so they should view all of their circumstances through that knowledge. Friends, sometimes being in church leadership removes us from the knowledge that we are actually God's children. And we go into some kind of weird performance-based, ministry success-based approval process with God the Father. And we're very persuaded and very able to share the love of God the Father for his children to other people, but really, really struggle to believe it for ourselves. On the way to school the other day, I was driving my boy Daniel, who's, who's just turned six, he's in grade R. And um, he said, Dad, and so I turned down the radio, I said, what, my bad? He said, will you ever want to stop being my dad? And I said, never, bud. There's absolutely no ways I'll ever want to stop being your dad. And I just adjusted the rearview mirror and watched him, and he looked out the window, and he just mouthed out the window, that's awesome, that's awesome. So comforting for a little one to know that whatever happens, I'll never want to stop being his dad. That afternoon, I go home, and this little guy is such a gentle little tuck. He's just a wonderful little boy, and uh, yeah, yeah, just God's richest blessing to us. He said something totally out of character and really offensive to his mother. And so I said, okay, bud, I'm going to discipline you. And he said, well, what does discipline mean? I said, I'm going to I don't know how it's going to go in this room. I'm going to smack you on the bum, all right? Okay? And so we're not recording this. Can I go? No, okay. Um, and he said, why? And I said, well, you're not allowed to say that. He said, but I said, sorry. I said, I know you said sorry, bud, but there's, there's consequences to actions. And then he said, but you said in the car you would never want to stop being my dad. And I said, no, bud, and now I'm going to prove it to you. And so we went through the process. It was, it was the least, you know, forceful thing ever experienced in life because he was he was sobbing before I even got close to him so it was like okay let's cuddle um and so but we went through the discipline process and I hugged him and I whispered in his ear and I said bud I love you I'm your dad and it means sometimes I'm gonna have to show you 
that I'm your dad by showing you what's right and wrong. Discipline from the Lord is one of the greatest evidences of his love towards us. Guys, I know these church communities that you're part of. I know that you guys get continually pounded with the gospel. But you're going to need to believe it through the different seasons of life when things don't go your way. God might just be treating you not with disapproval. God might just be treating you as his child. But you'll miss it if you don't know who you are in him. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. That's a great verse for social media restraint, just by the way. And so if you want to tweet something out tonight, that's a good one. And someone will probably disagree with it from the Christian blogosphere. Okay, so strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Elders, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Fifth one, our discipleship of other people really, really matters. This is the icky yard work of pastoral ministry. This is what it means to be a shepherd in the flock. This is what it means to be an elder and an elder's wife, to to lead other people in maturity of Christ. Look at all of these instructions are all in the plural. The assumption is you're not just doing this for yourself, you're doing this for other people. That's the assumption. See to it that no one fails. I mean, that's a, look around you and make sure no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Who are you going to walk alongside making sure that they, that, they don't fail to obt- that, that they don't fail to obtain the grace of God? You aren't just responsible for your own walk. Part of what you are to do is to see that people around you don't miss out on the wonderful grace of God. This isn't just a call into community because it's a mode of church growth. It isn't just a call into community because it's the right thing in the church to do to have small groups. Well, what the writer is saying is the way we walk out in community is adding, listening, listen. When they roll around in your house on a Tuesday night again, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, the way we walk out in community with other people is actually adding to the perfection of and the completion of God's people. It matters. Your seemingly insignificant, burdensome friendship with struggling sinners matters for eternity. This should change our posture to friendship It should introduce an urgency and a rigor that we see very little of. In prepping this message just yesterday, I picked up the phone to someone who I can just watch walking away from the grace of God. And as a friend who has read this, my urgency should go, see to it that no one fails. Phone, stop them, take them somewhere, read them the scriptures, pray for them, get urgent. It matters. It matters. Your faith isn't just for you. Your faith is for the blessing of those around you too. So let me ask some questions. Maybe let's just break this down. You guys think about church community a lot. Maybe, maybe we can just kind of make this a bit more granular. Who can you encourage in God as a project for the rest of this year? Just stop. Just Holy Spirit, just help us. Just bring names to mind. I, I think the Holy Spirit will answer this. Who, who around you can you encourage in God? Just take the time just think about it and just commit to it. Who can you lovingly provoke who's failing to walk in the grace of God? Who are you watching just walk away in disobedience? 
Who can you share the gospel with again, even though last time it went terribly? And then let's ask this one. Which relationships have a root of bitterness that will only be uprooted by repentance and forgiveness? Isn't it interesting that the writer of the Hebrews says that bitterness defiles people in the same way that sexual immorality defiles people? It's toxic. Which of your relationships, your godly people you're leading in the church have a root of bitterness? It's causing a defiling sense All right. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, verse 28. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Last one. Our worship matters. One of the hardest things, this is weird, it's counterintuitive, but one of the hardest things about being in church ministry and about being in leadership of other people is that sometimes we can miss out on our big view of God because we're so busy looking at the granular levels of ministry. How can we keep up hope and faith in the work of his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken? We get to see the worst of people, and so we can become pessimistic about the advance of the kingdom, strangely enough. When was the last time you just considered his wonder and his holiness and his majesty? You know what I end up doing in worship services? I wonder if it's too cold. I wonder if it's cold enough. I wonder if it's too loud. Oh, why are they singing Good, Good Father again? <laughs> I hope the song doesn't segue into ocean. Oh, here it goes into oceans. <laughs> I have to lose four points from my sermon because we're singing oceans, all right? And I have to correct the theology. Never mind. Uh, it's a, uh, and you, end up, you can go long, long times before you actually stop and consider what you're singing. And actually have moments where you're actually just overwhelmed by the goodness and majesty and consuming fire nature of God. Ministry can actually turn off our affections for our great father. What a terrible, terrible outcome that would be. And so guys, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you tonight. There's so much potential in this room. And I would just love to see elders and elders' wives who know that this moment this moment they're in, the ministry that they're in, it matters. Whether you're in a mega church or a tiny church plant, it matters. I want you to know that your fight against sin matters, and so I want you to go back to it and put that sin to death and fight it. I want you to know that your endurance in the faith matters, that you're building something that will last long beyond your generation. I want you to know that your identity as a child of God really, really matters and that nothing can take it from you. I want you to know that your discipleship of other people, as ham-fisted as, as it might be at times, really matters. It's worth something. It's worth something. And I want you to know that your worship, your private worship, and your public worship of your great King of Kings and your level of awe really, really matters. The church is a magnificent thing. God's beautiful bride. Currently, as we sit here, being perfected. We get to be part of that. Please don't grow weary or faint-hearted. The work is just too meaningful. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much just for a few moments together tonight, just in your word.
I want to pray that you can take just these ancient thoughts and, and just root them into our hearts in a way that inspires and invigorates and exhorts and, and brings to repentance and to life change. And that as a result, Father, the people in this room would not grow weary or faint-hearted. I want to pray for those who walked in here weary. I pray that your Holy Spirit gives them energy to endure. Maybe they're weary of routine. Maybe they're weary of ministry. Maybe they're just weary of themselves in their own rebellion. I pray that you just fill them with resurrection hope, with a picture of you perfecting your people, which they are part of. Lord, I want to pray for those who have grown faint-hearted. They teach the majesty and magnificent worth of Christ to others. But truth be told, it's been a long time since they felt it themselves. I pray that today you would help them to just grab hold of that and for them to just press in like a runner, to just pick a mark on the horizon, to just run towards you and to find in you just something of such great worth that their heart is again stirred, that their affections again stirred for you. Lord, I want to pray that as a result, these churches here in the Western Cape will be well-led for many years. And I want to pray full of hope, Father, that batons will be passed to the next generation of gospel faithfulness that will mean the light of the gospel will not go out in Cape Town, but that it will continue to grow and grow and grow until Jesus returns. We cannot wait for that day. Make us faithful in the meanwhile. It's in his name we pray. Amen.